Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. In addition to everything else that happens in this episode, um, with all of the characters, one topic that was not looked at from a halachic perspective, a perspective of Jewish law, but is is a perspective, is a topic that has what to say in Jewish law, um, which is what we were learning about earlier with the um, the New Orleans folks, is about sort of male fertility testing and the halachic challenges, possibilities, et cetera, related to that. Um, but as it's on the episode, it's, you know, there's the, uh, you know, a halachic piece of, right, spilling seed. You know, there's a pro- general prohibition, which the Zohar and the Code of Jewish Law say is the worst prohibition in the world that you can ever possibly do of spilling seed. Um, and spilling seed levatala, or not. And so the question becomes, what about when it comes to fertility testing? You know, is that considered zera levatala? Is that spilling seed for not? Or, you know, even if it's not directly for a procreative purpose, it's indirectly for a procreative purpose. It's for the purpose of testing, so as to be able to hopefully have children, right? So, um, you know, there's a lot to say from a halachic perspective about that. Um, I think all post-scheme, all decisions of Jewish law say it's permitted and encouraged, though they do say, you know, it's preferable if it's done, you know, this sort of the semen is collected through the course of natural intercourse, like, for example, using a condom, using it, my dad's making things, like having sex with your wife and using a condom and then taking that versus, you know, um, you know, going to the bathroom like Amir does on his own, like, like Rav Moshe is like, no, don't do that. Though I guess if there's no other option, that's better than nothing. But, you know, they say it's much preferable to sort of have, you know, receive, get the semen that you need for. Um, so Renee says, what's the difference? Either way, sp- uh, sperm is spilled, which is true. The difference, I think, is that... Um, it, there's sort of a general, there's a lot of conversation in the Talmud and rabbinic thought about um, what they call sort of adultery by way of, you know, the hands or the or feet or limbs or so forth. And so it's seen, I can pull up if people are interested. Um, okay. So, right. So this is from Rav Moshe in his, in his, um, Chuva on the topic, right? He says, in our case, since he is permitted to have sex with his wife, we should not do this, extract the semen through having sexual thoughts about a woman or with warm bread on the anus, which is what the Talmud talks about in a similar case of trying to get the man's semen, but rather by having sex with his wife. And if it's better for the testing of the semen that he wear a condom when they have sex, that's preferable, or to the other methods mentioned, which include, for example, you know, sort of having sex and pulling out and spilling that seed into a cup. He says that's better than going into the bathroom and having sexual thoughts about you know, generally, but there's sort of a hierarchy of, of uh, possible ways of collecting the semen. Um, and da, 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 da. yeah, he says if, if the condom, yeah, Rabbi Shaz. Can I just make one comment? You're doing great, but can I make one comment? Of course. Okay. Um, also, I'm just impressed that you're doing this with your parents in this class. I don't know that I could do that. Um, 
So Debbie, a few people could. <laughs> Debbie, Debbie, but they're great, so that's why he could do it. Um, so Debbie said the sperm would die. So there's there's actually a specific type of condom, um, kind of colloquially known as a kosher condom, um, that could be used in this way. I will say that when I looked it up, because I had never heard of it before I did this research, um, when I looked it up, it does not look like many people are using this, but like in the ultra, ultra orthodox communities, if they don't want to be go into a clinic um, and uh, and giving a sample in that way that they can actually use this type of um, condom that doesn't have any spermicide in it and actually allows for some of the sperm to enter the woman um, but can still be uh, can still be removed and keep some of the sperm that can be then taken to a lab so um, everything that I found based off of that uh, method I guess um, is that it could work. There's also a chance that it wouldn't work, same as what Rob Parnick was mentioning in terms of, like, just having sex and <laughs> the screen going on and off. Is very so I, I put the screen back on because I saw Denise's question in the chat, which is exactly what the last paragraph oh, okay. of Moshe says. He says, don't do this in the doctor's office. Very bad. Don't have sex in the doctor's office to collect sperm, uh, to collect semen. So that was just added to respond to Denise's question in the chat. That's okay. Great. I don't know what else I was going to say. So that's, that's, uh, Debbie's question maybe about this or comment. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there's a limited amount of time that that sperm can survive. And if you notice that when he took his little cup and hit it, they're like, come back in an hour and, you know, within an hour or so, I mean, what they're going to have sex in the middle of the night and then hang on to it till the morning, the sperm will all be dead. Yeah. So. we meant by sperm will be dead. Yeah, I think that what what they're basically suggesting, at least in the in the um, articles that I read, which by the way, when you're picking random topics like this and you go down rabbit holes of articles, it is very interesting what people have time to write about. Uh, I'm just worried about what ads I'm going to start getting. That's my concern. <laughs> like, anyway, yes, know. and that um, I had not thought about that. Um, uh. Rabbit holes, that's what you were saying. I wasn't talking about rabbit holes. No, you were talking about the rabbit holes that you find of what people talk about. I was trying to get you back on your train of thought, you know? Oh, that, that, um, that what they say in these articles is not that they would be having sex in the middle of the night, but rather, you know, they would they would try to have sex either in the morning before they go to the clinic, or basically what we're talking about here is that having sex is a better method of collecting sperm than it is through the means of like masturbation or going into a doctor's office, right? That those, that those are not the, the halakhic ways. And so making sure that you can, um, have sex to collect the sperm to then bring it. But yes, you're right that the timing, they do go into the timing, um, factor of doing that and and all modern especially liberal jews are not doing this they're saying go to a clinic and um and you know have it done in a way in which the doctor can then just take the sample and and do the testing that that is more important than this idea of it being zero levatala which is not what it is it's not you're filling seed you're using it for the for the means of procreation I was just going to note one uh, one additional thing on the topic, which is interesting, right? The the, the origin of the prohibition, as it's described in the Talmud and in the Shulchan Aruch, is from the story of 
Judah's sons in the book of Genesis, right? This, and the understanding, at least of the Talmud, is that both sons die for the same sin, which is for, as, to use the Talmud's terminology, threshing within and winnowing without, right? The threshing on the inside, winnowing on the outside, right? So it's interesting that in the, in the like, Rav Moshe, where he's saying that's actually, right, that's much better than, say, like, masturbating. Right, because actually the origin of the prohibition is sort of within the context of a sexual activity, and then sort of you know the man pulling out and um, releasing the seed elsewhere. So I just thought that's interesting that even though that's the origin of the prohibition, that's not seen as like the worst thing. It's sort of seen as a preferable option. Um, um, before we go much deeper into this uh, conversation, because I meant to say this before, but. Rai Pranik went, you know, from zero to a hundred and it gave a really good overview before we get a word in. As I do. Yeah. Yes. Zero hundred. Hey, something we agree on. Um, that I want to just point out not to get like serious for a second, but I, I do want to point out that, um, this show makes this all seem very easy and very like rainbows and butterflies and you can just go to a clinic and find out that everything's fine and now they're going to have sex and they're going to have a baby. At least that's what the show is making you kind of think is going to happen. Um, and I just want to point out, I know we talk about this in my congregation quite a bit, that like infertility is a really uh, sensitive subject and something that people deal with for all sorts of reasons. Um and being being able to go to a doctor and have tests done and being able to find out if you are uh, in need of some kind of medical intervention or different lifestyle choices, whether halachic or not, uh, to make sure that you can get pregnant is a real thing. Um, and I just, I wanted to, I don't know if Rai Pernick was going to say that, but I just wanted to say that having this conversation and having it through the form of a show, there's obviously things we are not talking about. Um, but one of the pieces that does come up and I, and I see it when talking to couples who are going through these struggles themselves, that there's that blame factor of, well, do you think it's really just me because I'm the woman? And of course it's my fault, right? I didn't ovulate correctly or we didn't count correctly or whatever. And then he goes and has this test done and finds out that everything's fine and he wants to celebrate. And that's hard for her um and and that makes sense because now what is she thinking whether or not it's true she's thinking well so i must be the problem um and so i just wanted to point this out from the beginning that this is sensitive that this is something that people should be getting help medical rabbinic if you want it um counseling all of those kinds of things if you are dealing with infertility with you and your partner and um that it's not as easy as just what they do on this show uh, and that there are people around to be able to, to help with that and that we will talk about it as sensitively as we can, but I wanted to make sure that that was put out there first. Dad. Well, so, you know, as Rabbi Shas just said, this is a very common occurrence and we know that like in America, they say basically one out of every five couples has infertility issues. So this is a very, very common issue. But what I wanted to also just add is this was a, a part of the show where I was disappointed in Amir, who's really one of my favorite characters, because when 
you know, he's so depressed and he's so down and, and everything's sad. And once he gets his test results, it's like, you know, it's happy time, you know, but he's, he has no sensitivity for his wife because it's kind of like, okay, it's not me. It's you. I mean, he's not directly saying that, but I, I was very disappointed. I understand from a personal point of view, he's going to be happy that it's not him, but given his feelings for, uh, Yifat, I, I was disappointed in his lack of sensitivity towards her. Yeah, I agree. He's also one of my favorite characters, um, if not my fa- favorite character. And once again, we agree. So. Yeah, I knew there was a rabbi Pernick out there that would agree with me. Um, and I think that, you know, to give him the benefit of the doubt, at least, I, I think there's... There's something, maybe he was actually feeling stressed about the fact that it could have been his biology that was not allowing them to have a baby. And so now he's, uh, he's happy that it's not. And I just wish that there had been, as you said, a little bit more sensitivity towards what it sounds like when you say, let's celebrate, right? Even if he's not insinuating that it was her what it seems to to mean is that it's not me so anything I do now is not going to be the problem it's going to be someone else something else whatever it is um I agree with I agree and I think that over the past like few episodes at least this is what Rabbi Pernick has been saying and I kind of agree with him is that he's been he's been kind of like missing the mark in a few ways in this relationship like he's not really so sure how to navigate like people have um social anxieties and awkwardness i feel like he has like marriage anxiety and awkwardness he doesn't really know what he's supposed to be doing with he thought and especially in this moment where he could have been a little bit more sensitive he he really wasn't um yeah yeah Okay, I'm going to go out of order and call on Jeff because he has a great shirt on. So, um, <laughs> Jeff. Oh, I just had a question. Uh, at the end of the show, when he, he took the pregnancy test out of the, the trash, did we, did we know what it was, what it, what it said? Could we see that? Yeah, it was negative. It was negative. It was oh, only one line. Yeah. I love that all the women knew that. Yeah, it was, it was a negative test. <laughs> I, I thought it was a positive test. So, okay. We should have told you it was positive. No, it was negative. And I think that that was actually the moment where what your dad just said kind of actually flipped for him, where he realized that he had been mm. he had been lacking a little bit of that sensitivity that he probably should have shown in the moment because uh, he saw that she still was not pregnant, even though there's nothing wrong with him. Uh, she still wasn't pregnant. Yeah. And again, great chart, Jeff. Okay, Debbie and Steve. He still hasn't heard you, but it's funny that you keep saying it. Um, so, um, two things. One, as um, people are getting are older now, when they get married, we see that the age yeah. of marriage going up. There are more issues with infertility because women are born with a certain number of eggs, and that's all they got. Men can just keep making that sperm. Um, so the issue sometimes with infertility, some women use donor eggs, and how is that looked upon halakhically? Do you want to take it? Do you want to go? Or do you want me to? You can start. I'll finish. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of conversation in Jewish law about both, you know, donor eggs as well as now I'm, uh, why am I blanking on the term? 
having children through surrogacy, surrogacy, sur- yeah, through surrogacy and, and th- you know, things like that. So all of these things are, per- you know, they're permitted by Jewish law. Um, the question becomes on, on sort of all sides of the question, what the, you know, there's a question of the Jewish status of the child. Mm-hmm. So if the, right, if the, if it's donor eggs from a Jewish woman and the child is, you know, and the baby is, um, you know, and the eggs are in, and in, in the, you know, in, in, within a Jewish mother, then there's no problem. But on either end, whether it's, you know, surrogacy or donor eggs, if, if the carrier or the egg donor, as it were, if either of them is not Jewish, then there's um, issues related to, you know, conversion, which is not a big, you know, it's a conversion at, you know, right as soon as possible after birth, usually as a, as part of a bris for a boy or, you know, a ceremony for a girl. So those questions come up, but, um, but beyond that, certainly for women who are unable to um, have children with their own eggs using either donor eggs or surrogacy are, are absolutely viable halachic options. There is a question though about IVF in terms of it being similar to kosher food. Um, it- being watched and therefore known to be, um, you know, egg meeting the correct sperm as opposed to sperm from a non-Jewish man somehow um, meeting the the egg of this Jewish mother. So again, one of these articles that I read talked about how for some very from couples, they choose to actually have the rabbi or chaplain uh, around uh, present when the actual contact is made between egg and sperm. Um, and had you not heard of that? Is that why you just did that? With your head? Yeah. No. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and so that's, that's another piece of this that there's, there's a lot to be said for kind of the watching process um, and and how controlled of an environment it's it's done in. But as Riley Pernick was talking about, that that's more you know if you're dealing with an actual egg where you know it's it's coming from a certain mother or going into a certain woman's body. Um, but I just wanted to add the IVF piece in. There and there's also a lot of conversation and, and challenges from, from my understanding with IVF, typically multiple fertilized eggs are inserted into the mother. Um, right. Is that correct? But yeah. I, I um, but I, I believe so. I don't, yeah. I don't. So, know. right. So from my understanding, typically multiple fertilized eggs are, are put into the mother's, um, you know, uterus because typically not all or, or many of the, of the fertilized eggs won't, end up, you know, becoming viable. Um, that does create problems halakhically, sort of like abortion style questions about, you know, are you allowed to, um, you know, eliminate a fertilized egg? Uh, you know, if they inserted three and all three are viable, you know, start so becoming viable, right? There's all kinds of things that medically typically are done so as to, you know, I mean, a lot of people have IVF twins, right? That's very common. Um, but there is certainly a lot of halakha conversation on that topic of whether that's permissible to, you know, eliminate a fertilized egg before it becomes sort of a viable fetus. 
The only other halachic thing that I will mention that has nothing to do with this part of the process, but just in general, um, is what some people call halachic infertility, which sometimes is affected by the way a woman is counting if she's practicing hilchot nida. So... without getting into too much of this since it's not exactly the topic, um, the way in which a woman might be counting after she has her period before she can go to the mikvah, if, if the counting, if the period was longer than expected and then the counting goes longer than expected, it's possible you can miss an, an ovulation window. And so that's another piece of uh, infertility in the Jewish world that comes up sometimes even before medical intervention you would go to a rabbi or someone who is close to you that is knowledgeable in the topic and you would say, we're having trouble um, conceiving. Here are all the things we are doing. If we are practicing Hilchonida, here are the ways we are counting. Can you help us with this? And I actually had a, had a situation when I was um, working in Northern California where a couple came to me, asked me these questions. I didn't know enough of the information. I called Rabbi Pernick. I was passed around the Beit Midrash. Uh, yeah. She got Chobavei Torah, met a lot of rabbis, and spoke about these random people to a lot of people. Um, and got an answer uh, from someone I'm not I don't remember who do the Rebbins are of Yona I think it was uh, yeah, okay. Uh, I don't remember. And um, I spoke to all of them, but I don't remember who the answer came from. And ultimately, it came down to this idea of halachic infertility in terms of how they could be counting and how she could be uh, kind of uh, manipulating, maybe is not the right word, but working around things with her period to make sure that the next time she ovulated, they were actually able to have sex. So that's another halachic piece in this in this system. Just, yeah. One brief note on that. So typically, the standard way that Nita is practiced, at least in the Orthodox world, is that it's five days plus seven days, right? Women, Talked about it's that. a five-day period from the time the first appearance of blood. You wait five days and then start counting seven days after five days. So that makes a 12-day total period of time that a woman's in Nita every month. Unless her period is a different length of time. Unless it goes longer and then it's longer. But, but even if it, it's shorter, we don't typically go less than the five before the seven, typically, right? So like, for, again, from my understanding, for most women, that ends up meaning they come out of NIDA right around their prime, time, prime fertility time. But every woman is different. And there are cases, and that's, you know, as everybody shots talked about, that's sort of often referred, um, referred to as halakhic infertility, or orthodox infertility or things like that are, are actually women who, because of the nature of, you know, as Rabbi Shatz talked about, because of the nature of that typical way that we observe Nida, it actually ends up that the woman's still in Nida at the time of prime fertility. So, yeah, exactly. But that I think is because orthodox, of the way orthodox fertility is not a nice term. I think halachic I saw that online, so... I don't know. I, halakhic infertility is how I always heard about it, but, you know, I saw something that's... Orthodox well, infertility makes it sound like there's something way worse going on, um, <laughs> uh, which maybe there is. Uh, Denise's one, the, to Denise's comment about, you know, <laughs> the general hospital, the embryos are created in the lab and then implanted one at a time. Um, I think even if that's the case, there's still then the question about what about the fertilized embryos that aren't implanted are can you dispose of them right so even still there's still that question um, 
or can you only fertilize one and then see if it works? And if not, then you have to go through a whole nother round of IVF in order to fertilize another embryo, right? So that's kind of, I think, the question that comes up. Uh, even So there's, you know, the fertilization separate from the implantation. Okay. Thank you. That makes sense. Great. Thank you. Any other comments, thoughts, questions? Was there anything else we wanted to talk about? Yeah, I mean, so the, originally, like, you know, I, I mentioned the halachic piece at the outset. I mean, I think a lot of what, you know, I sort of was talking with Rabbi Shatz about, you know, maybe the direction for this conversation is the ways in which, obviously, in this episode, and I think in so much of life, it's also, right, it, it's not so much the halachic piece. It's much more of the social piece. And, I mean, we touched on this a little bit, but... Oh, yeah. you know, the way that kind of the shame is felt by the by the women more, right? It's sort of seen when couples have issues with fertility, right? Typically, the assumption is that it's the problem with the woman and not the man. Societally, that's the assumption, even though medically that's not necessarily the case. I don't have statistics. I remember hearing it's about about equally, you know. Well, you know. It should be right because if you, if it's a man and a woman who are having a baby, then it should be fifty. Like there should be. Yeah, so I think I remember hearing that it's like one third of the time it's you know something shows up on the man's tests, a third of the time something shows up on the woman's tests, and one third of the time they don't know why, but they're having trouble. You know, there's no. So that's what I recall hearing. I know we have doctors here who probably know more than I do on this, but again, I think it's interesting that so much of the focus here is on Amir, and then Amir ends up celebrating when he knows it's not him. You know, and I think you sort of feel for Ifat very much because there's that assumption coming in that if there's a problem here, it must be the woman's problem, not the man's problem. Um, so there's just a whole like social dimension and, and dimension related to, I mean, Rabbi Schatz talked about this before a little bit, but you know, feelings of shame, feelings of uh, inadequacy and so forth that often are sort of born unequally, even if the, you know, medically the likelihood is about equal. Well, and I think that that it goes even deeper than people who are um, infertile, right? As soon as even in our community, which is a fairly liberal, we're in Los Angeles, like you don't really get so much more liberal than that, maybe Northern California. Um, But as soon as you're married, people now want to know, when are you going to get pregnant? And it's, it's kind of stopped i feel like my mom got it much more than my friends get it now um but as soon as you are married people just assume it's going to be so easy you're going to have a baby and you're going to have many babies and when does the first one come and when is the second one and when is the eighth one right so i think that as soon as you are married and you don't start having kids then that's when a lot of this also comes up in terms of well, either we're not going to talk about it or, oh, there must be something going on with her. Uh, and the woman typically feels that. I mean, I've spoken to women in our own, uh, not necessarily like shul, but like our Los Angeles community who have dealt with a lot of this, especially in the Jewish world where the little, you know, yentas want to know when's your first kid coming and will you name it after me? And I think that's, uh, that's really hard when either you're dealing with infertility or you just don't want to have to talk about the um, the reproductive, you know, agenda that you and your partner have. 
Okay. I thought people would have thought some comments. <laughs> Can I bring something different up just very briefly? Yes, you may. And that has to do with the father and mm. his dating mm. and the refusal okay. of both of the sons to really mm-hmm. have anything to do with uh, the it girlfriend. Vera? Is that her name? Vera, Vera, Vera. Anyway. Yeah, it was Vera, yeah. Vera, yeah. I mean, and putting aside her personality, but just conceptually, and and I think this is a very, very real issue that um, lots of people, and certainly, you know, as, as rabbis, we see it all the time, that, you know, somebody dies, and at a certain period of time, you know, you one can argue whether four months is too soon or not, but but certainly a certain period of time. I, I mean, I've seen the same thing when it's been four years or even you know ten years, and the kids are just totally not willing to accept it. And sometimes the the father or the you know it could be the mother um, they have to live together because the kids will not accept a remarriage. Yeah. <clears throat> But I mean, halachically speaking, <clears throat> one is allowed to begin dating, I believe, after three months. I think that that sounds right. I mean, for people who watch Stissel, if I recall correctly, the first episode, uh, right? Yeah, isn't it? Doesn't Stissel start like the first episode of the first season mm-hmm. with like it had just the year had just finished and now sort of immediately. Shulam, the father, begins to sort of go somewhat on the prowl for, you know, because it's ready to... So is the reciting, does he recite Kaddish for a spouse for a year? Um, I think he, like you're saying, can, can, like you certainly can recite I mean, Kaddish for a spouse. Well, you can, but in terms of what's required traditionally... What's required is only for a child. A child observes for a year. Correct, for their for parents. For a spouse or for a sibling, it's it's typically... I mean, again, you, you can say Kaddish as long as you want, but the, the, the main customs of you know things like not going to simchas and those kinds of things, that's just for a month. Right. Except for a child for their parents. But I think what the tradition says is that remarriage is three months just so that if there's a child that's going to be born that the the, the fatherhood you know the parentage is clear right no i think yeah yeah, yeah. i think that's so I, and that was one of the things that was actually confusing to me with with schnitzel when it started because it was a year and like you say there's nothing wrong with waiting a year but i don't think you had to wait a year right and i think there i mean it's also interesting to think about what the halacha is getting at there i see a couple of people in their hands so i'll call you in a second um you know what the halacha is getting at with the idea that a, you know a child is in sort of full mourning for a year versus other relations including a spouse is not for that full year and i think you sort of see that play out both with Shtisel and here with Sergeim, that you know to use this one okay so like four months have passed and not that he's ready to move on but Nati's father is at least ready to sort of like start a new chapter in his life. It's been four months and the, and the children are still not remotely there emotionally. And it's like really, really hard for them because, you know, I think it's sort of touching on what the halacha is getting at anyway of like, for them, it's like for a whole year, they can't even fathom that idea. Whereas for him after four months, it's, he's like, and again, that's quicker than I think is common, but he's sort of, okay, I need, I need a new chapter in my life now. 
Um, so there is sort of that difference there, which is kind of played out in the halachic differences. Yeah. Um, okay, Norm, I see sort of my whole top row is up. So let's start with Norm, and then we'll go um, across. Um, I think that socially, um, children often find it difficult to deal with a parent dating or marrying, and that the Jewish community is not an exception. And I don't really think it's a halachic issue for them. They just can't cope with it. Um, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that point of view. Um, but I'm also sympathetic to the, to the parent who wants to get on with his life after a certain time. And, uh, uh, but it's, I don't think it's an, an halachic issue particularly, um, at all. Yeah. But I know people get very upset about these things. People do crazy things. Right. I'm saying that I think the halacha in some ways not that it mirrors because everyone's situation is different, but it touches on something that's emotionally true, which often when we come to morning law, people will say that, that like the, the way that halacha functions sort of maps onto the ways that people grieve. And, and for, the, for the three months, I imagine it's that a widow would need to wait three months to make sure about that. But chances yeah. are they would let the widower um, right, the man. start being involved with women after a shorter time, like one month. Right. And that might be the case. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, that's okay. I just, um, the one thing I want to just remind us about Halacha versus 2021 is that when people were, and this is kind of goes to Rabbi Dan Pernick's point, like when people were passing away, um, back when the Halacha was being written, they were younger. And so there was a, there was the potential for the woman to still have kids. It was definitely possible for the man to still want to have a partner, whether there were going to be kids or not, to have, you know, a, a person to spend the rest of his life with. So I agree with Norm and have been in that situation with a grandparent in my own family. And I, I think that it's definitely hard and at least when I hear this kind of scenario, I'm thinking of my grandfather, right? I'm not thinking of a young person who was then getting married to continue on with a family. So I just want to, I just want to bring that in because I do think the halacha would potentially be different if we were talking about in 2021 when we're talking about someone who's hopefully well along in their in their years in life and are just looking for part not just are looking for meaningful partnership for the end of for the end of their lives um i'm gonna have to jump off but you are in very capable hands with multiple rabbis pernick and uh it was really lovely to see you all and i will see you next week okay thank you rabbi shots i think denise was next i believe so i'm gonna call on denise see you tomorrow um, so I got the sense, even before he started dating, I got the sense that, that Nazi and Roy's dad was kind of flirty. And hmm. so, you know, like when, um, oh, right, even when the he came over. Was like, and even before that, but yes, he was flirty with Raoult and he was kind of flirty with Hodaya when she gave him tea and he was just like, he didn't. He didn't seem like a guy who just lost his wife. And it could be that she was sick for a very long time and he had already done his mourning. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that he's a little bit of a ladies man. And maybe there's like a bigger picture that this is tapping into that the kids didn't like. And maybe, you know, because also because like when when Nati shows up at the restaurant, Vera's like draped all over him. And it was yeah. like, what are you, 15? Like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I also very much noticed that. That is like, she did not play that well. That is like that. <laughs> right. And then she seemed like kind of an interesting person when she was talking about the energy and letting things out. Like, I don't know. She seemed kind of interesting, but totally not appropriate. To yeah, not your role. On. Not your not your role in that moment. You know, like, yeah, very much so. So it just made me wonder, you know, about his backstory and, and how much of their feeling has to do with maybe things that went on in the past. Yeah, I think it's something I hadn't thought about, but I think that's you know really a good point because we you know there's sort of this dynamic where they're the sons and especially Nati are like, oh, dad is really mourning and suffering, needs to take care of him, and he's like kind of okay, um, and like you know. You think this is played out in different ways, but you're right. I, I forgot about but you know the, him sort of being kind of flirtatious with Ruud, not in an inappropriate way, but in a, like, I think you're right that the, you know, it might just be his personality. It's a, you know, whether it's because she had been sick a long time and he had already done the grieving or whatever, or he's just worried about being alone. And it's sort of like, okay, I need to like get out there and start seeing people because otherwise I might get stuck in, in you know, so I think there's different reasons we can imagine. Yeah. Also, it's funny because you mentioned that the kids were like, so, Oh my God, we got to take care of dad. And, and like now that you say that, I think you know, you almost would have expected them to be relieved because none of them wanted to do it. Right, except they're, they're not. Right, so like, <laughs> right, they're like, no, he's supposed to be sad still, and he's like, not so sad. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. His emotions aren't matching theirs on this. You know, like they're still totally in the midst, or at least not to, still totally in the midst of grieving, and you know, that is kind of moving on a little bit. Okay, yeah, Renee. Sort of a halachic question, I guess. When, when in within the from community, especially the Haredi community, um, the men are encouraged to marry early, partly from what I understand, so that they don't have because they are maturing and they have sexual urges, so that they don't act on those sexual urges inappropriately. Mm-hmm. It's better that they get married earlier, so that they can then. So w- with their father, mm-hmm. obviously he's not. I assume he's not going to have children anymore, but is that something that is still considered um, with older men as well, that it better that they find someone that they can have a relationship with or a marriage with so that they don't just fool around with so anybody yeah, that's in a skirt? It's so interesting. Cause I, I think experientially like, I think often there's a sense, right, right, he can father a child at any age, right. But I think experientially, there's sort of all of this, like, right, everything you're talking about when it comes to sort of that first marriage, especially, you know, for someone who ends, ends up having, you know, a reasonably long-term marriage, you know, that, like like you said, that, that focus on marrying early and, and all of that. The sense I have is that, it kind of it changes when when someone's a widower and and maybe this is different in the modern orthodox world versus in the Haredi world but at least in the modern orthodox world from what i've seen there's sort of it seems like you know once someone's a widower it's a little bit like 
okay, like all, you know, all, uh, not everything's out the window, but suddenly no one's asking those questions. There's not those same, like people don't treat it as strange if they're together and not married, you know, if the man's with a woman and they're not married and they're sort of seem to be publicly together, like all these things seem to change after like with older men, um, and it might be that there's an assumption like, okay, they already did their mitzvah, you know, they did pruru, and so like we're not so worried about um because ultimately the concern about Zeralavatala, about spilling seed is is comes from a concern that that will be in lieu of having children, right? That's mm-hmm. really what the concern comes from. So it might be even though, as Debbie slash Steve say, you know, he can father a child right. at any age, there's also often a sense of like, okay, they've had their kids. Like he's not likely to want to have more kids. Even if he was still married to his first wife, probably would not be having any more kids. So mm-hmm. we sort of, not that we don't care as much, but, but there's not as much of an emphasis or a focus on it. Even though halakhically, like that might not actually be something that like, should, maybe we should be caring about that. But I just think experientially, it seems that that's not the case. Right. Funny little story associated with that is that um, I did Mishloach Manot's for the some of the elderly in our community mm-hmm. and um i went to deliver it to this one woman and a gentleman opened the door for me and he called her and she we started to con- conversing and she was european and you're this, from the same country my mom was from mm-hmm. and then she tells me you know the gentleman that the guy that opened the door for you he's not my husband my husband died 20 years ago but it's okay because we're not having kids anymore <laughs> <laughs> the woman, by the way, was 96 years old. I thought it was the cutest thing ever. <laughs> but she so felt cute. like even in this day and age, and even with her age, she had to clarify to me that she was not living totally in sin because they're not planning yeah. on having kids. It's so interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, mom. Just unmute yourself. Yes. Yep. So I think, just going back to um, Nati, I think he's jealous of his father. I think he's jealous that his father's able to move on because he's stuck and he's not able to mourn properly and get past it. And I think he's jealous that his father is able to develop relationships that he's not able to, you know, he just has a lot of trouble with relationships. So I think he's, he's just jealous of his father. (laughs) (laughs) Always good. So yeah. Round of applause from that. But yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. There's a sense of like, no, he's supposed to be really struggling and like, I think so much, right. The, the sort of the next level nature of Nati in this episode, like he had been clearly struggling before, but it's like clearly elevated a, a lot of notches in this, in this episode. And I think that is a huge part of it, right. Is that what well, everyone else, even my dad who just lost my mom, he can now develop a relationship and he's okay. And like, I'm still not, I think you're, yeah, I think that's very, you know, and seeing everyone else, you know, and everyone else is doing okay. And, you know, all of that. And, you know, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a huge piece. Everyone's having a relationship, but me. Everyone's having a relationship with me. Yeah. Right. And even, you know, my, you know, my old dad is, you know, it, suddenly seen as desirable and I'm still not like what's going on here. So yeah. Good, good point. Mom. Thank you. Jeff, were you going to say something? I see Michael and Sue have their hands. Well, I was just going to, I was just going to, uh, Take another shot at my favorite character, Natty. Uh, <laughs> it's covered pretty well, I think, uh, by Norm and others too about the, as far as father's relationships go. Uh, I just think you know, he can't even get along with the uh, the lady clown 
in the hospital very well. Right, so like, yeah. I, I had medical students like that. Some, not very many, fortunately, but I had a few, you know, and especially the early years. So I, I had very little sympathy for Nadi at all. Medical students who couldn't get along with, you're saying, with like. Well, medical. you know, their social, social uh, say, skills hadn't developed. I see. Yeah. It's, um, right. It's like, it's not, and I get that he's, he's sort of like, just like, I'm not like head down. I'm just like powering through this and like, leave me alone, get out of the way. And she's a clown, but he's like, he's, yeah, so obnoxious <laughs> to her, like so incredibly obnoxious to her, um, you know, and, and also look, frankly, like, it's not easy being a medical clown because you're in a setting where you're like clearly different and right. That's also part of the job, but like you stand out. And so it makes a huge difference for a medical clown to feel like they're being supported and their work is seen as valued by the medical team. And so having this, you know, resident come in and and just totally dismiss her utility entirely is just like yeah but then when does he value her when she's suddenly attractive (laughs) 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 yeah Yeah, it's like oh you're actually pretty like okay never yeah i'm waiting for uh yeah he has difficulty laughing yeah i'm waiting for that relationship to uh, develop we'll see i don't know i can see Okay, All right. I was going to say, I think Nati would have been more responsive also to the woman had she not been such a floozy or whatever, how she was acting. And then to say, you know, here she'd been divorced. You know, it's a difference in divorce and a widow. And just the things she say, said and just should have been more reserved and laid back. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah. No, I, I certainly, and I think that point about the difference between a divorcee and a widow is like a really important one, also. And Mm -hmm. I think that's you know sort of why it comes up. Obviously, there are many widows who marry divorcees, but there's you know often there's it's sort of a a different type of right. It's just you're dealing with different kinds of things. Yeah. So yeah, she certainly right. Her being draped all over him. Her making comments a trying to sort of almost parent nazi like that <laughs> don't yeah. Do that. uh yeah there's just a lot of things she does wrong nazi obviously doesn't handle it well yeah they made her french i noticed that as well yeah, yeah. she's very french which is kind of um to go with uh jeff's background there but um yeah so i yeah she i mean she doesn't handle it well but obviously nazi also very much doesn't handle it well so okay a few hands i know michael had his hand up I see my dad has his hand up. I see Leonard has his hand up. Just, I guess I'm more reiterating at this point, Josh, but the uh, hus- Nadi's dad's girlfriend, I think, is terrible. And I think his dad was totally insensitive. And the way she... Ch- Granted, Nadi has a lot negative, negatively on his plate. We know that. Mm-hmm. And I'm hardly the greatest defender of Nadi. But in this particular... St- The father has no empathy with the fact that Nadi is still going through enormous emotional grief. The the girlfriend, I like your word floozy, uh, the girlfriend has no business going after him at all. She's a total stranger. And to treat Nadi as a 10-year-old was just, 
I, I, well, I basically found her close to despicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hard, but I do. Yeah, she's just French, you know. But, uh, <laughs> um, Was she supposed to be French and not Israeli? I mean, yeah. Jewish, yes, but no, no, she's she's yeah, she's she's a French Jew. French, French Israeli, but her her Hebrew is very heavenly. French accent, and my best friend from college is French. And she even threw in French words and stuff. Yeah, she threw in French words, exactly. Yeah, so um, yeah, definitely. Okay, oh, also a stereotypical of what a stereotype of what some Israelis think French Jews are like. Well, that could be not too. very fair. Yeah, that could be as well. Okay, yeah, Leonard. So you were talking about. Um, you know, it's not uncommon for uh, for older people to to remarry after they lose their spouses. So I was just wondering: Is a Cohen allowed to marry a widow? Uh, Only of a Cohen. Thank you, Dad. A Cohen can marry the widow of a Cohen. Ah, okay. Because I was going to wonder if it's better for them to live together, not being married, or for him to marry her against the rules. Yeah, what about gay Cohen's like Andy Cohen of Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole different. <laughs> no, right. Can a Cohen be gay? Of, right? a, a Cohen cannot marry a divorcee or a convert, um, or I guess yeah, typically a widow, unless it was a widow, a widow of a Cohen, which I, I don't know if I actually knew that. So thank you, Dan. Um, yeah, so that you know, yeah, good question. I uh, I just wanted to um, uh, contrast here. We have uh, Nati's father wanting to introduce his girlfriend to his family, to his sons. And then you have uh, Asaf not wanting to introduce Hodaya to his family. So mm-hmm. the contrast of those two. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, for bringing that. I love how you always like bringing those connections. You're right. Yeah. that, And I think... Truthfully, I think Nati's dad recognizes that this is not a simple thing that he's doing, right? And he, I mean, he's, he does kind of keep pushing it. Like, I want you guys to meet Vera, right? We sort of see that at the beginning of the episode where he's, you know, they're on the phone and he's like, you know, so, I, you know, I think he, right? And he even, when he finally, when was the last episode of the episode before, when he sort of walks out of Nati's apartment and comes back and says, like, Okay, I need you to know, like, I'm seeing someone. Like, he, he clearly understands that this is not a simple thing, but he also wants his sons to be supportive, and they are not, at least, I think both, but in different ways, right? Roe is just more avoidance, you know, okay, I'll be there, and he doesn't show. Nazi shows, and then, you know, is obnoxious. So they uh, sort of handle their dis- strong discomfort in different ways. Um, but you're right, it's very different than Asaf, who doesn't want to introduce her, and, right, and like, there's sort of different complicated family dynamics at play, but you're right. There's like, that is an, a notable contrast for sure. Right. Um, I thought there was someone else who had their hand up also, but Norm, your hand is up according to the screen. Or- yeah, because I really thought Vera um, nailed Madi on the head. Exactly. I thought her description of him was exactly right. Oh, yeah. he, he behaved you know, you say you should, shouldn't treat him like a 10-year-old. Well, he behaved like a 10-year-old. It was really uh, terrible. But in the other case, it was particularly a problem for Hodaya to me because she um, was 
was not telling her family yet that she was no longer from, and she'd been very worried about them discovering. We saw that in previous episodes. And so she should have been understood that he might be in a very similar situation. And so if she's going to intervene at all, she should do something to make it look like she's somebody that they would approve of and that he would appreciate that, which she utterly failed to do. Yeah, and that's, I think, what bothered me so much about her in that scene is she's coming in with her short skirt and short sleeves, and she goes and starts rubbing his cheek and all that stuff, which is like, for this person who was so nervous about her booby, you know, seeing her with pants that she didn't stop her in the street, right? Like, where did her, where did that sensibility go when it comes to other people, right? So, yeah, completely agree on that. Um, Okay. Can I say something about Hodaya? Yes, please, Denise. So I felt like because they don't communicate about these things verbally in a direct way, I felt like part of her demeanor and and the whole thing surrounding Asaf and his family and his stress and everything, and then coming home with the yarmulke, which I thought was actually very cute on the subtitles. She said kippah, and they translated it as yarmulke. Which I thought was really well, cute, <laughs> but um, but you know, he he was so dismissive to her at every step of the way, as in terms of like, oh, I'm like really experienced at being Heloni, and you're just a newcomer. And but he, but it wasn't like an enjoy. It like really, really irksome to me that he it just so dismissive, so it just disrespectful, not in any way honoring just that she has her journey, not having any empathy for her. And, and so it's like you at two brute, you, Mr. Khilani shrimp living with women and tell him yeah. you are saying to Hillam with a yarmulke, like, give me a break, you know, it's like- totally made fun of her. If she showed any, tension around her family or he would have laughed in her face he would have no respect for it yeah that's interesting i mean the the name of the episode i'm forgetting what it was exactly but it touched on that kind of like divine involvement i forget it was like or something it was something like that the title of the episode um which i played at the beginning and it's sort of like yeah you sort of see that and I, i don't think for him it's just the show for his family i think that's primarily you know but he comes back and he you know he says it I forget how they translated it, but he, he says in Hebrew, you know, it was an effing nace, right? Yeah. Like it's a, right? Like it's, it's, he's like, this Mr. Chiloni is like, no, but this is like a nace. This is like really a miracle, right? So yeah. he, you know, suddenly that bad boy Chiloni, like, is, is not going to handle he's wearing a keep anymore. It reminded me that there was a thing from World War One where they used to say, like, there are no atheists in foxholes. Yeah. You know, because right. atheism was, like, up and coming at that time. Right. And, you know. Yeah, no, completely. That's the same idea. And, and I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> does that, does that stick? You know, I like to tell the story when I worked at, maybe I'll finish with the story. When I worked at, a, you know, a summer camp, um, I went with a friend, with two friends to, like, an amusement park. And we got there like first thing, you know, right as the, as the amusement park opened. And then when we got, we finished the first ride and suddenly my friend who drove us there couldn't find his keys, his car keys. Um, and they'd flown out of his pocket on this ride. And we went to the people below and they're like, 
it's that ride covers three square miles. There's swamps. There's like, they're like, you know, they said, you know, we mow the lawn twice a week, but like, if it's in there, you know, like, you know, whatever, it'll show up in a few days. And I remember that friend, like, who wasn't religious. I mean, it was a Jewish camp. It wasn't religious. And, and, you know, suddenly he's like, okay, but God, like, if, you know, if, if you this key, if you make the keys show up and his parents were out of town, they were like in Michigan. He's like, if you make the keys show up, I'll, I'll go to Davening every morning and write all these stuff, all these things. And then of course the keys, you know, ended up flying from the ride onto the walking path and someone turned them in and we found them and like, he did not continue to go to Minion after that, right? Like, which is the typical story. Um, there's a million variations of it. But yeah, you know, the question I think then is like, is this actually going to enact like, create a change in him because sometimes it does or is this going to be like it was a nice this is incredible and then i'm going to go back to being who i was um i think that's sort of one of the storylines that we'll have to we'll have to see <laughs> it's kind of, yeah it's becoming pretty interesting so um lots of, of storylines to see how what direction they go in but i think we'll call it here for the nights so thank you all for joining and for sticking around even a little bit late um, thanks rabbi Absolutely, Thank you, Rabbi. I appreciate it. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.